The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Being a church planter is fun. Having a, a church plant is uh, a lot like having a baby. Uh, you have a long gestation period before anything goes public, and then um, you have this like helpless little thing that you love a lot, but that other people around you think, um, if they're be honest, isn't all that cute. Because um, let's be honest, there are such things as not cute babies. Um, and you, you, your baby is the most beautiful thing ever, but sometimes you look at somebody else's baby and you're like, wow, that looks more like a frog. And, and, and sometimes, like, uh, like, to you, like, the baby is so sweet and cuddly, but, uh, you know, you're, you're on a plane or something with a baby, or you're in the, walking to the store, you're in the restaurant, and you see the people around you giving you kind of weird looks. And having a church plan is kind of like that, like, you think it's all cute and you love it and you've worked hard to get to this point, but, other, you know, it's maybe not the most beautiful, cutest thing in the world, and other people kind of look at it, it might be a little bit annoying, um, when, uh, uh, And at that stage, at the baby stage, every little thing the baby does is big news, right? Like, my son, he's four years old. Whenever he has a PB&J, like, that's no big deal at all. But, like, the first time your child eats, like, real food, you know, you chronicle it like it's like a presidential summit, right? There's, like, flash bulbs going off, and it's going off into the the Twitter sphere and everywhere so everybody can see it and comment about it and like it, and everything is awesome, and, and, uh, and your baby's first step, like, is not exactly going to make, like, the first page of, or any page of the New York Times or even, like, the Sun News, but, like, it's a monumental step for you. Um, last week was a monumental event for us as a church, even though maybe a larger church would have been no big deal. As Dale mentioned, uh, we were not here, and we're just, like, really excited um, that everything went off without a hitch. We didn't think there was going to be any issue with that. Everything went smoothly. They actually finished up beforehand, before the service and post-service faster than we do it, which, I don't know, it says something about them or it says something about us. The encouraging thing is, I want to take a minute to just talk about this, is that the reason that it's really exciting is that when we began to plant this church, we planted with the idea in mind that we wanted to be about team ministry, that this thing is not about me or about Dale. And that's why from the very beginning, we've rotated teaching, we rotate even the way Jamin leads songs, we rotate who leads that. None of this is about any one person here. It's about a team joining together, about a community of people on mission together. And that's why it's really exciting. So like we weren't here and the trailer made it here and people unlocked the the building and things happened. It's another step in our maturity as a church. And we just want you know, to thank you guys for giving us the opportunity to go off and not kill, our, kill each other as we were confined to a two-bedroom condo with five kids and four adults. And we just thank you for that. The way that started out was two weeks ago today, unbeknownst to our kids, we had, particularly our wives had worked really hard. Keecher was up until like 3.30 in the morning the night before, and Megan had been planning the deal for like months, like maybe six months. Uh, unbeknownst to the kids, the cars were packed, the suitcases were packed in the car, everything was ready to, for us to go to Disney World, us, our two families together. They had no idea. And so right after church, the, the, the girls took our kids to Bojangles, which is my daughter's favorite restaurant, and they had lunch there, and then Dale and I threw some 
after a few calamities and dropping a few couple balls, we actually finally made it to the house. And when they, they just thought they were getting an extra play date with each other on our Sunday afternoon. And when they came in the house, we had like stuff set up like, we're going to Disney. And they're like, the kids are like, it took, them, it took them a while to actually figure out like, hey, this is really happening. And there was like, a couple, a couple of them were saying like, this feels like a dream. Is this really happening? And and they're like, well, when are we going? Like, we're going right now. Like, do we need to pack? Like, no, everything's packed. They're ready to go right now. And they're like, what? And like, it totally blew their mind. And then, so you would think, like, we would be able to just, like, jump in the car and go. But it was probably another hour or so before we actually got in the car. It involved um, a whole cup of milk being spilled on Keetra's lap, and it looked like she'd had an accident. Can I say that? I guess I already did. It looked like she had a personal a personal accident on herself, and then we realized, like, keys were missing, and we had to go to Dale and Keetra's house, and then it, it took us, it felt like six hours to get to Charleston when we finally got down there, and then, and then one of the kids had a meltdown, and we had to bribe them with Krispy Kreme donut, and it was, it took a long time to get down there, but in the process, Dale and I are riding in the same car, and we filled with the kids, and, like, one of us made a comment, like, look at us, and we're like, what? Like, no, look at us, and we're like, Oh, yeah, we are two guys, somewhat youngish, driving a minivan with a, a turtle shell on the top filled with luggage and kids, like, screaming. And the, the soundtrack at this point from all the way from Myrtle Beach to Charleston was this CD that their youngest daughter, Hannah, loves called Potty Time, which is exactly what you think it would, well, not a CD, it's a DVD. And they were singing the Potty Time songs in the back all the way down. And we just realized, like, wow, if, if it hadn't before now, daddom has really hit us hard. And the whole week was filled with daddom. Right? I mean, we have five kids between us, and we have two double strollers that we are navigating through Disney World, on and off of buses, on and off of monorails and boats, and parking them somewhere outside a ride, and trying to figure out where it was, and kids throwing up, and cleaning that up, and all kinds of stuff all week long. Like, daddom has hit us. Like, we may as well just have a fanny pack on with like wet wipes in there and just accept it and go with it, right? I mean, but, and if we'll be honest, like if I'll be honest with you, if you were asked Dale and I, what is your dream vacation? Like take family and kids out of it. It's probably not driving a minivan with a turtle shell on the top on the way to Disney World carrying two double strollers, right? It would probably involve something else, but something happens when a greater love comes into your life. When a greater love comes into your life, it always changes your mission. And that's true, always. When a love enters your life, it always changes your mission. Armand and his fiance are experiencing that right now. Whenever you love somebody, your life alters. You will move across states. You will change jobs. You will decide to stay in a job you didn't want to be in. You will do all kinds of things that you didn't think you would have otherwise because when a love enters your life, it always, always changes your mission. And that's what this passage is talking about when Paul is writing to the church, <coughs> excuse me, the church in Corinth from verse 19 to 23 and actually the whole chapter, chapter 9. Paul had come down to the church at to Corinth, 
and had planted a church there. Now he had left. He'd been gone a couple years. And some people started kind of whispering in the church, like, you know, maybe Paul doesn't have our best interest at heart. Maybe he has, like, a whole other kind of um, game that he's playing. Maybe he's trying to, like, you know, pad his pockets. Or maybe he's trying to feel better about himself by being the apostle that planted the church. And maybe we shouldn't really listen to him. And Paul takes the time out from the letter to say, hey, I just want to remind you, like, I'm not getting anything out of this deal. Like, I showed up, and I, you guys didn't pay me a single cent. There was no, like, Tammy Faye Baker, like, doghouse with an air condition, no offense if you have one, a doghouse dog with an air condition, or you guys are buying us a jet. Like, Paul came, and he said, I, made, I paid my own way. I did my own deal. I didn't, wasn't getting anything out of this deal. In fact, we, excuse me, we see in 2 Corinthians, I don't have this on the screen, but uh, I'll run through this real quick. This is Paul talking about what his life was like as a believer First uh, Corinthians, sorry, Second Corinthians, chapter eleven, verse twenty-two through twenty-nine. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Uh, far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. That's that's yeah, that's not great, is it? Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Like one shipwreck is like like a pretty cool pretty cool party story, right? He had three of them to his on his resume on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and am I not weak? Who has been who is made to fall? Am I not indignant? So Paul is listing out. Hey, this is what I went through. I didn't have any mixed motives when I came to you. And so, when you read that passage and you think about it that way, think about the beginning here of in verse nineteen that Will read. Thank you, Will. For though I am free from all, that's back to First Corinthians chapter nine. For though I am free from all. I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews to those under the law. I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, see, see a theme in here? To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. The first thing that this passage tells us is that the gospel leads us to freedom. Look how Paul opened up that passage in verse 19. For though I am free from all, and then uh, then down um, verse 20, though not being myself under the law, like he's, he's telling them about how the gospel comes and makes us free. If you here are, are today a believer in Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ has come to you and has made you free. You're no longer bound by your sin. You're no longer bound by a destiny of an eternity in hell. You're no longer bound by the old ways that you were. You're no longer bound by the law even, you are been, you've been freed in Christ. 
You've been freed in a very real way, and I say this almost every week, you've been freed in a very real way of we are all looking for identity and security. We're all looking to, to find some way to make myself feel better about myself, to make myself feel like I have some sort of significance, to make myself feel like I have some sort of meaning in life. I heard a guy on the radio this week, they were talking about how this guy didn't believe in Jesus, obviously. He was talking about how um, at the end of life, how we tend to uh, become more and more racist and we begin, tend to want to be more and more around the people who are like us. And he had this whole explanation, which kind of makes sense of that. One of the reasons that we do that is because at the, when we're facing death in the, in the eyes, like we want to find some sort of sense of meaning and significance. And I find that in sort of my people group, the people who I know and understand and they know and understand me, it makes me feel like my life counts. We're all looking some way to tell myself that my life counts and means something. And what the gospel says is that Jesus Christ makes your life count, that he put a value on you that you couldn't put on yourself, that you were lost and helpless and hopeless apart from him, and he went after you and found you, and he found you uh, and wanted you enough that he placed a price upon you of his own life. And that's where your value and significance and identity as a person comes from, not from anything that you have done or haven't done, not from your resume or what is or is not on there, not where you live or the car you drive or what office that you're in at work. Your value and identity, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, rests solely upon the value that he placed upon you. You are free from having to find identity and value and security outside of yourself. You're also free from the reign and power of sin in your life. Before you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are just a slave to your desires. You may feel free, you might feel like you like, get to decide everything that you do, but you're not. I, I, uh, <clears throat> I have always, 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 some people that are new and they haven't heard me talk about this yet, so I'm going to just bring this into the sermon. I have always, always, always hated pot roast. Ever since the first moment I tasted it as a little child, I hated it. It is like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. I cannot stand it. It is like devil food to me. I am, I am convinced that it will be the meal that is served in hell. I, it, the, the smell of it, the sound of it cooking, when somebody puts it on my plate, my skin crawls, my stomach turns, I can't help it. Like maybe I would like to like it, but I cannot like it because like I also don't like spaghetti and as a child, whenever somebody invites you over to their house, I also don't like lasagna. So just in case you're thinking about having us over, like lasagna, spaghetti, and pot roast on the no-no list. It's like pot roast at the very bottom, lasagna very close, and then spaghetti just above that. And when somebody invites you over to their house, what do they serve? They serve one of those things because it's cheap it's easy to make for a bunch of people and everybody likes them except this weirdo right here and people would have me over and I would like I wish I liked spaghetti because I'm hungry and I can only eat so much garlic bread and salad for it to fill me up but I just cannot I cannot bring myself to like it no your spaghetti is not the one that's going to turn me to the other side I just hate it it doesn't matter I cannot help it in the very beginning I can't make myself like it it's just engineered into me and you and I are like that with a lot of things you and I are like that with sin. You and, you and I, some of us have different propensities, different weaknesses, different things that call to us, but you are a slave to your desires. You can't make yourself want something different. You just like something or you don't like it. And the power of the gospel comes and frees you from being trapped to your desires. 
It frees you from being pulled around like an ox with a ring through its nose, whichever way the owner wants to take it. Because, it, because the power of the gospel comes, and it doesn't just like say, hey, you're free from sin, your past slate is clean. The gospel comes in, and by the power of the Spirit of God resident in your life, your very desires and drives change so that you don't really want the same thing that you used to want. Maybe it has a pull on you, but at the very core of your being, you want to be different. Your desires at the heart change. It's the miracle of the new birth. The gospel brings freedom. brings freedom from us looking for identity and value in places that can never give us identity and value, and it gives us freedom from the power of sin in our life, or the reign of sin in our life. But a lot of us, <clears throat> maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you experience like this bit of freedom. And a lot of us are sort of like, um, we live lives like college freshmen. You remember like, like you ever seen or were you a college freshman like the first semester? And you're just like, you're away from the family and you got your own deal and you got maybe got a little bit of money in your pocket or maybe you're, you're lucky and daddy's like put money in your bank account and you're like, life is Spread out before me like a giant buffet at, at, at uh, I don't know, Golden Corral or Ryan's. Like I am going to, or Disney World last week, like I am going to put the feedback on and I'm going to run and do whatever I want to do, whatever I can do. And some of us are like that with freedom. Like, I, like the message comes to you like, hey, Jesus has paid for your sins. You are clean. Your past is wiped clean and your future is wiped clean and you are secure in a place in heaven with him for all of eternity. And we're like, I got my card punched. Let's go, baby. And you're just like running around like a college freshman in life just like, hey, I'm gonna take this because I can. I'm gonna do this because I can. I'm gonna do whatever I, whatever I, like little doodad sort of captures my attention. It's sort of like the, the rides on my, all my illustrations are going to be Disney-related today because that's fresh in my mind. It's like the rides at Disney World, have you ever noticed, or, or I guess a lot of theme parks, like the ride dumps you out into the, gift, into the gift shop, right? And so then you have to walk through the gift shop with the kids and all the characters and stuffed animals and all the car that you, the, the ride you just rode are like all like on your way to the exit. And your kids are like, wow, and they're grabbing everything. They want all this junk that you know like, 30 minutes later, they're not going to care about it, and it's just going to end up in the trash in six months. But they want everything because it's gleaming and shiny and new, and it, it looks good to them. And some of us are like that with freedom. There's something glitters and catches our attention, and we're like, oh, I want that. We are always constantly grabbing at the gift shop at life because we sort of, we're sort of missing the point. If you think that freedom, the purpose of your freedom as a believer is so you can run around and run after every cheap diversion, every cheap diversion that you see, then you and I are missing the point. Because here's the truth. <clears throat> Excuse me. Freedom is always costly. Freedom is never free. Somebody always had to purchase freedom. Either you purchased it or somebody purchased it for you. But freedom is never free. It is always costly. Your freedom as a believer cost the second person of the Godhead leaving the comfort, security of heaven, taking on the form of a man, living a perfect life, and dying a death for you. And then not only that, 
rising again, and not only that, but then pursuing you. 2,000 years later, when you were born, and you went after running down your own path, he pursued you and engineered your life so at the exact moment that you were ripe and ready, you would hear the gospel. Maybe it was in a setting like this. Maybe it was somebody sitting down, sketching it out on you on a, a napkin in a Burger King. Maybe it was hearing something on the radio. But at just the right moment, he engineered all of history so that at that point in time, you would hear it and you would be born again. Your freedom as a believer is incredibly costly. The gospel leads us to freedom. And then the gospel leads us to urgent, loving servanthood. Remember what I said about when a new love comes on the scene, it always brings a new mission. Look at these phrases in this, in this passage. Paul says, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. And interesting, he said, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Look at the other, and four other times he says, in order to win, that I might win, that I might win, that I might win. Because when a new love comes on the scene, it always brings a new mission in life. At any given time, I'm married, I have two kids, I have a wife, I have a home and a mortgage. Uh, at any given time, I have the freedom to walk out the door and never come back again. I have the ability to do that. I have a business that I own. I have a, a church that I'm helping to plant. At any given time, I could walk out the door and never come back again. I could do whatever I want to do. There might be consequences of it, but I have the freedom to do that at any given time. I am a, probably a bit larger than I should be, six foot one dude. I have two little kids. At any given time, I could do something that could hurt them or maim them. I have the ability and the freedom to do so, but I'm constrained by a greater love. And not just constrained, but I am motivated in a a a a pressure from inside me, not from outside of me. There's, there are laws saying, do not abuse your children, but I don't need those laws telling me not to do that, though at times. <laughs> because I have a greater love from inside me that seeks their greater welfare over mine. And that's what Paul is saying here about his life He's saying he's been made free in Jesus Christ. He's not bound by any sense of finding identity or value from anything outside of him. He's not bound by sin anymore. He has nobody standing over him saying, look, you have to do this. You have to do that. But he says there's a greater love that is welling up inside me that is causing me to change my mission in life. And my mission isn't about me anymore. 
Just as because I love my children and I love my wife, my mission in life is not about me anymore. Hey, young dudes, if you're married, not married, getting ready to have a kid, have young kids, here's, I'm young, but here's one lesson I've learned, that to learn what it means, this is, this is extra bonus. To, as the more and more I learn about what it means to be a godly man, it means living less and less for myself and more and more for the people that are around me. It means dying daily to my wants and desires. It doesn't mean those wants and desires aren't still there. It means there are greater wants and desires that eclipse those lesser wants and desires. And that's what Paul is saying. I doubt Paul wanted to be shipwrecked three times or beaten with a rod or beaten 39 times with a lash. I'm guessing that wasn't at the top of his list. But there was a greater love. You would think like one shipwreck, okay, that's a fluke. Second shipwreck, like I'm hanging the cleats up. I'm out of here. I am not doing this anymore. But a greater love compelled him and pushed him from inside. Nobody had to stand over him and say, Paul, go do this. Go give your life. He willingly, gladfully, joyfully, and urgently pursued a new mission in life. And that new mission was a mission of servanthood for the sake of the gospel. Paul lived his life for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel being heard, being proclaimed, being believed and understood. His personal history, his preferences became subservient to his greater passion. I want to ask you this morning, What are your great passions in life? Are you walking through the gift shop of life, being distracted by every bauble, every shiny thing, every nice, fluffy Winnie the Pooh on the shelf? Or is there something greater that is compelling you from within to live a different kind of mission? What is your finish line? What is your goal? What's your success? If it's things like more money in your pocket or a larger house or better clothes or a wife or even kids, like all those things are great and good. I'm, we are pro houses, pro cars, pro kids, pro family. But if any of those things are the top of the list for you, then you and I are being distracted by a lesser mission. And you're being distracted by a lesser mission Because you're being motivated by a lesser love. The point here, and if you've been around church very long, you've been in church meetings and sermons where the topic was evangelism. The topic was sharing your faith. The topic was praying. And and as soon as the preacher started talking about it, you're like, oh man, I feel guilty. I'm checking out of this. Or if the preacher is particularly motivating, could put the guilt trip on you really good, describe why you should be doing it and how you should be doing it. Like maybe you say, all right, I'm going to go do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly to South America and I'm going to pass out tracks. Or I'm going to give money to this missionary. Or I'm going to go out and do visitation. Or I'm going to invite somebody to church. And the point here isn't that you would do something. The point here is that you would be motivated by the same motivation that compelled Paul to get up after each shipwreck, to get up after each time he was beaten, 
and say, I'm keeping on for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of a greater mission, because he was motivated by something greater. That calling is not just the calling of an apostle. It's the calling and the privilege of every believer Because it's not just the Apostle Paul who was rescued from darkness to light, from death to life. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, you have been rescued from darkness to light. You have been rescued from death to life. How can that not compel us to a different mission? I love Megan and my kids, and that compels me to a different mission in life. Because whenever I see all that Jesus Christ has done for me, all that he is to me, and how not only what he has done for me in the past, but what he's doing for me now, how he sustains me and upholds me, and not only what he's done for me, but when I see him in his glory and his beauty, when I think about the fact that I've been brought into relationship with the one who spun the universe into existence, that right now at this very moment upholds every molecule, every atom by the word of his power, He's the only one holding it together at the very core of it all. He's the one that thought up giraffes and the stars. He's the one that put the oceans there and all those crazy like critters that are the bottom of the sea. He thought that all up. The badger and the dog. He thought up that little rabbit that's in my house. He invented all those things and he upholds all those things by the word of his power at this very moment. The comets and the, the, the other night we were driving and Somehow I missed both of them, but Dale and Megan saw these falling stars that I did. I had my eyes closed, and this falling star was bright enough that I actually saw like a flash of light, and then I opened my eyes, and Dale was like, you missed it. It was amazing, and he thought that up and controls that. The sun and the moon and the stars, he thought that up and holds it all together, and I have been brought into relationship with him. It's the same reason that I want to worship him and give my life to him because Because the same reason that whenever I see anything awesome and amazing, it elicits praise from me when I eat a nice, a good dish, when my team scores a touchdown, whenever I stand on the edge and I see an amazing waterfall, or the other night when I saw the sunset and the whole sky was lit up like a, I don't even know how to describe it, like a giant neon sign. It was amazing. He is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And I've been brought into relationship with him. Whenever I realize that, it changes my mission in life. I want him to be worshipped and praised and adored by everyone else. The same way that whenever you meet your new girl and you hang around with your friends, you bash, you're like, bash, you, 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 you can't stop talking about them. You're like crooning about them to everybody. Is, is that a word? I don't know. Crooning. You're, you're talking about them. You're, you're gushing about them. Your friends can't stand anymore. Like whenever you, whenever you have a meal, that's why you guys are Instagramming your, your plates. Like we really care, but because you ate something awesome, you saw something awesome, you want everybody else to see it and experience it. When you hear a new song, you want to share it, or a new movie, you can't help but tell people because when we enjoy something, the, the sharing of the joy completes the enjoyment of it. And whenever you enjoy God for who he is, you cannot help but to share him because that completes the enjoyment. What's the motivation 
and the motivation and the core of Paul to live a life of urgent, loving servanthood is that at the center of his life was a deep, white, hot love for Jesus. It was his reason for living. It was what he feasted upon daily. The taste of his former life was always on his tongue. So he was feasting upon Jesus, enjoying communion and presence with him, and yet always, always on the taste of his tongue, on the tip of his tongue was the taste of the former life. You ever tasted something really bad and you can't get the taste out of your mouth? Like you try to drink other things, taste other things, and you can't just get the the taste. It's still like, it's still there. I've, this is really gross. I've changed, (coughs) excuse me, uh, my kids' diapers before, and it was so pungent and powerful. I felt like it had, like I had swallowed it, and it it had filled like every core, like pore of my being, and I couldn't get the taste out of my mouth. I couldn't get the smell out of my nose. I couldn't tell if I got it somewhere on me, and I was still smelling it, and or if I was just, if it was just so pungent, it's still sticking there in my nose, and I'm smelling it. Like, I can't get rid of it, and that's what your former life should be like if you are a believer. The taste, the smell should be so constantly on in your nostrils and on your tongue that you remember the darkness that you brought from to the light now. You remember the trash that you were eating before as you are feasting upon the feast that he has laid before you now. He was motivated because the center of his life was a deep, white, hot love for Jesus. And he was motivated because he was acutely aware of the darkness and peril that the people around him were in. You can't mix those up, by the way. You can't put, like, you can't, I can't guilt you guys in saying, hey, people around you are in peril. Now let that motivate you because that will only motivate you for so long. Right, if you guys have been Christian for very long, you've like left church one day or some conference one day and you said, man, I'm gonna be all about evangelism because people around me are, they're in peril, they're in darkness. Like that motivates you for a few days, a few weeks, a few months and eventually like you realize like it just, it only keeps you going for so long. But a white hot love for Jesus, feasting upon him daily with a taste of your old life on your tongue then reminds you whenever you look around you every day of the peril and the darkness that the people around you are living in and a longing in your soul that you cannot manufacture on your own that only comes from Jesus' heart for the people around you will compel you and push you to a different kind of life. What's the method? The motivation is a white hot love for Jesus and a constant awareness of the darkness and peril that the people around us are in. What's the method? The method flows directly from the motivation. Love. Loving service in particular. Paul is saying that whenever he was around different types of people, even though he was free to eat pork Whenever he's around the Jews, I'm not eating pork. Whenever, whenever he's around the Gentiles, you can eat the pork. But he's going to live a moral life still. That's why he says, like, though I am not 
I'm not under the law. Then he says that though I am, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That law of Christ still compelled him so that he was around them. He could connect with them. They could connect with him. And yet, he was motivated by a different, a different morality, a different type of life at the core of his being. Only great love can motivate us to make it worth it to consider my legitimate wants, wishes, and desires subservient to something else. That, you know what that means for you and me? That means for you and me, when you go to work tomorrow or whenever you go to work, that we should be working towards a different end. Maybe at the surface, the way you work and the way the person beside you works looks the same. But your end game is different than their end game. Your goal is different than their goal. And what is the goal? That by all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Only great love can motivate us to make it worth to consider my legitimate wants, wishes, and desires subservient to something else. A greater love compels me to live my life with a mission of a life of loving, urgent service, servanthood to the people around me, particularly those who do not know Jesus Christ so that they would come to know him. So what does that mean? How do you, so this is the question for you to ask yourself. How do you, how do you govern your singlehood and the way that you view the opposite sex and date people in such a way, not just so that you would meet somebody, but so that the people around you, you might win them? How do you govern your marriage in such a way, not so that you guys would be happy and blissful, but so that the people around you might be one to Christ? How do you parent children? Or how, do you, how would you be an employee or an employer or drive your car or manage your recreation time or govern your free time? How would, you, how would you decide what your long-term goals are in such a way so that it's not about your comfort and your security because that's already taken care of if you're feasting upon Jesus deeply, but rather that you might win some for Jesus Christ. What does that look like for you? It'll look different for each person in this room but it's questions that all of us have to be asking and answering ourselves. The gospel leads us to freedom. The gospel leads us to urgent, loving servanthood. And the last thing that I get out of this passage is that the gospel leads us on a life of adventure. Let me ask you this question. What if your great boredom and dissatisfaction in life was based on missing an all-encompassing, life-consuming mission? A vast majority of Americans are bored. 
in our free time or our moments of time. We're so bored, we pull out our phone and we flip and look at something or we sit down and watch TV. We want something to stimulate me. What if what you're searching for in, and and I'm not anti, video games and movies and TV and books and Facebook and Instagram and how many followers you have and how many likes you have, what if the great motivation that's pushing you and pressing you in those things is really because you don't have an all-consuming, life-altering mission for your life? Think about what it would mean, what, how it would add richness and depth to your life if you began to consider your job, not as some dead-end job that you're going to put your 40 years in and clock your, your way out one day, or, or, or your, your career is like, I'm just padding my pocket so I can retire as early as possible. What if your life, your end goal, was a greater mission that is eternal for you and for the people that it would affect. And what if it wasn't just like an all-consuming, life-altering mission that you just happened to choose, but what if it was the all-consuming, life-altering mission that God himself embarked on whenever he created the world and determined before the foundation of the world that he would send his son on a rescue mission for to you and us that we might be part of his family for eternity. Jesus left the privilege and comfort of heaven for the sake of the gospel. And we get to join him on that mission. And if we get to join him on that mission, you know what else that means? Not only does it give your life a richness and a depth, not only is it, if you're feasting upon him, something that you cannot help but to do, but you are, and I are assured that that mission will happen. You and I can put money in the stock market and it could crash. You could build a business and it could go under. You can base your life around your kids and one day they'll move out and they'll say, thanks for that, I'm gone. And you're left with an empty house. You can build your life around your spouse and they leave one day. But you build your life around the mission that Jesus Christ came upon and you are sure that when you cross the finish line at the end, you will succeed. You get to be on the winning team. It's like, It's like you being a player on a football team and somebody telling you, you get to pick which team you're going to play on. And let me tell you, the Patriots win the Super Bowl. We already know the end, the score, the final score, and you and I get to join that team. It gives depth to life. It gives passion and energy to life. And it gives us great assurance of success in life at the very end. The band's going to come up. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, I want you to take the time as they play. 
just to ask some of those questions that I asked. What if your great boredom and dissatisfaction in life is based on missing an all-encompassing, life-consuming mission? And what would it mean for your singleness and your marriage and your parenthood and your employment and your job if the end goal of any of those wasn't padding money in your pocket or just having somebody sleep beside you at night or having a kid, but was something greater and eternal and long-lasting? And if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, maybe today is your day that you can meet the one for whom you're created. And I urge you to bow your knee to him this morning, confess him as Lord, and as Savior. Would you like somebody to talk with you and pray with you about any of these things? I'll be up here, Dale's up here, grab us. Uh, Megan is in the back, Becca's here, Justin's here. Grab one of us, Keitra. We'll be glad to talk with you and pray with you. Um, should you need it. Father, I thank you so much for um, the fact that you did not leave us to a, an empty life, but that you call us to join you on the mission that you are part of. Father, I pray that you would help us to make that our life-consuming, life-altering mission. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.